Welcome once again to Radio in Vivo, your link to the Triangle Science community here on WCOMLP Chapel Hill in Carborough. This is Ernie Hood. I am a freelance science writer, and each week here on the program, we bring you cutting-edge information about what's going on in science here in the Triangle area, one of the world's leading hubs of scientific research, development, and innovation. You can email us at radioinvivo at earthlink.net, and you can access a full archive of our hundreds of past programs at radioinvivo.net. The Burroughs Welcome Fund is a Golden Voices underwriter here on WCOM and Radio In Vivo. The Burroughs Welcome Fund supports excellence in science education across North Carolina. The fund believes that providing students with engaging and interactive curriculum helps to spark curiosity for careers in science, mathematics, and technology. You can learn about education grant opportunities for North Carolina schools and teachers at www.bwfund.org. Radio In Vivo is underwritten by Chapel Hill Eye Care, located at 235 South Elliott Road in Chapel Hill. Chapel Hill Eye Care provides comprehensive eye care to people of all ages. Healthy eyes for a lifetime. Chapel Hill Eye Care, 919-968-4774. Radio In Vivo is also underwritten by the Triangle Center for Evolutionary Medicine, or TRISEM, a nonprofit center exploring the intersection of evolutionary science and medicine. TRISEM is jointly operated by Duke University, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, North Carolina State University, and North Carolina Central University. TRISEM is an incubator that promotes innovative developments in the theory and practice of evolutionary medicine by fostering cross-disciplinary collaborations among triangle-based scholars, physicians, public health workers, and more. Radio In Vivo is supported by NC State University's Genetic Engineering and Society Center, or GES Center. The GES Center is shaping the futures of biotechnology by integrating scientific knowledge and public values. Now live streaming weekly colloquia. For more information, visit go.ncsu.edu slash GES or follow the center on Twitter at at GES Center NCSU. Finally, Radio In Vivo is underwritten by Gene Centric Therapeutics Incorporated of Research Triangle Park. Gene Centric is pioneering the advanced classification of cancers for more effective drug development and more accurate diagnosis and treatment of patients through its core technology, the Cancer Subtype Platform. More information is available at GeneCentric. WCOM and Radio En Vivo thank this terrific group of underwriters for their support. One of the long-term, ongoing scientific success stories here in the Triangle has been the various research efforts to investigate drug safety. It's been a major contributor to improvements in the safety of drugs, and so improved protection of public health. I've had some of the big players on the drug safety stage here on Radio and Vivo before, but it's been several years, and now there is a young scientist in the field who is already making significant contributions, and it is my pleasure to welcome her to the show today. Dr. Mary Mosdale is the Assistant Director 
of the Institute for Drug Safety Sciences, and she is Research Assistant Professor in the Department of Pharmacotherapy and Experimental Therapeutics at the Eshelman School of Pharmacy at UNC Chapel Hill, the number one school of pharmacy in the country. She also leads the Translational Pharmacogenomics Research Program within the Institute for Drug Safety Sciences. Mary received her B.S. from Duke in 2006 and her Ph.D. from the University of California, San Diego in 2012. In 2013, she joined the Hamner Institutes for Biological Sciences here in Research Triangle Park as a postdoc, and then she became a research investigator. The Eshelman School absorbed the Hamner Drug Safety Program in 2016, and Mary has been at UNC ever since. Mary Mosdale, welcome to Radio In Vivo. Hey, thanks for having me. I often like to start these interviews, Mary, by hearing a bit more about the individual's journey in life. Uh, I've just given the thumbnail, uh, but could you flesh out your story for us a bit? What got you interested in drug safety research and led to where you find yourself today? Sure. Well, as you mentioned, I did my undergraduate here in the Triangle, went out to uh, California for a little change of scenery, and uh, my PhD work was actually in something entirely different. Um, I was working on understanding some of the um, very specific molecular pathways that contribute to insulin secretion from the pancreatic beta cells, really in an effort to help develop new therapies and new understandings in both type 1 and type 2 diabetes. That area of research is kind of generally called uh, molecular pharmacology. So it was good training for me in sort of uh, drug discovery and drug development. And I knew I wanted to stay in sort of the pharmaceutical space when I left graduate school. And I found this really wonderful opportunity to come back to the Triangle, where I you know, had such a great experience as an undergraduate, and I just love the area, um, to join uh, as a postdoc at the Hamner Institutes. And a lot of my um, training from graduate school in molecular biology and in pharmacology was um, certainly helpful in this uh, new opportunity at the Hamner Institute. So... That must have been very exciting to join that particular uh, institution at that time. Yeah, absolutely. There were, um, and um, a lot of this has continued outside of uh, the Hamner, but there were um, some really wonderful research programs there, uh, both um, in the chemical safety space and then the group that I joined in drug safety. Um, in particular, I was working with um, another young investigator, uh, Allison Harrell, who had had sort of a similar path to mine, um, who had uh, sort of pioneered um, the use of these uh, genetically diverse mouse population models to study genetic risk factors for adverse drug response. And I thought it was just an amazing technology um, and something I wanted to learn more about, and I thought I had some of the skills and um, experiences that would help me pursue that. And so I was able to join Allison's group and get some excellent uh, mentorship and some experience with her. And then um, as part of that, to join uh, more broadly the drug safety group at the Hamner Institutes that 
uh, was led by uh, Paul Watkins, who is a leader in the field of drug safety research and in particular in drug-induced liver injury. Mm -hmm. And so I knew uh, being part of his group would would give me some um, amazing opportunities and some excellent training as well. And then uh, the drug safety group being part of the larger Hamner Institutes, which had just a really long um, and very productive history in uh, the toxicology space, uh, I knew would open doors for me and, and really provide some wonderful training opportunities as well. So it was a great transition, great opportunity to come back to the triangle, to take some of the skills that I had developed in graduate school and apply them to a new area, and an area which I really fell in love with instantly. So it, was, um, it doesn't have quite the, I would say, glamour and maybe... Um, some of the heartstrings kind of moments you get in uh, disease-based research, you know, working in diabetes where you have such um, strong support from uh, patient advocates and, and from the um, patient community. It's a little different in the drug safety space, sure. but um, I don't think a lot of people realize what um, an important area of research it is because um, you know, all of the drugs that we use as consumers that help us um, stay healthy or help us uh, recover from, um, you know, some sort of um, health um, um, experience, they we want to make sure that they themselves are not going to be harmful for us. So well, it's a it's very a, important area of it's research. It's a major problem in, in public health itself, isn't Certainly. it? Certainly, yeah. yeah. Well, you anticipated my next question, which is why it's so important to uh, make these major advances in our understanding uh, of drug safety. And so I understand that mortality is a, is a big deal, and more, there's a lot of morbidity associated as well. Yeah, so the main uh, concern, I think, that we keep in mind in research in this space is patient safety. You know, certainly um, morbidity and mortality are a concern. Uh, we all, you know, hear about when we see those ads on the television, um, the side effects that are associated with the drugs that are coming onto the market. And they're real well, and they're concerning. On cameras out there having fun. And, yeah, you know, yeah. By the way, steam. don't forget about all these things. Yeah, death is included. Yeah, in exactly. <laughs> so, you know, our goal um, at the Institute for Drug Safety Sciences uh, formerly part of the Hamner, now at UNC, is to help um, make these drugs available to patients uh, faster, more affordable, and safer. And safer is certainly the most important of those three. Sure. Well, there have been a lot of technological advances in the last five, ten years, particularly uh, with omics research and biomarkers and pharmacogenomics. Uh, this is all adding up to some serious advances in drug safety, isn't it? Oh, yeah, I would 100% agree. And that's exactly the space that we're working in now. So most of the research we do at the Institute is focused on really in order to you know make drugs safer, um, make them available faster and make them more affordable to patients is really focused on understanding uh, mechanisms and risk factors for adverse drug response. Um, and certainly once we understand those mechanisms um, and risk factors, we can better predict um, and then hopefully prevent adverse drug response. Mm -hmm. And um, I think there have been some major improvements in that space 
And just in the past 10 years, as you mentioned, with the development of different new technologies and types of research and all of those that uh, are things that we're employing in our research program. So we do a lot of um, omics type research, um, genomics and proteomics and metabolomics are all part of our program. Uh, certainly, the evolution of computational biology has been really important for us. Uh, we have a big research program that's focused on computational modeling, and that's been, I would say, in, you know, hugely transformative in the drug development space. Um, certainly, you know, in our research in safety, but also in, in efficacy as well. Um, and then, yes, biomarkers, that's a huge thing for us. Again, um, efficacy has been um, important, but in our research program, we're looking at biomarkers of safety. I see. Okay. Well, uh, Mary, is the, is the main idea of the work to keep potentially dangerous medications from being approved at all uh, or to keep specific people away from specific medications to which they may be acutely vulnerable? All of the above. (laughs) So certainly the number one thing is to make sure that drugs that are unsafe don't get into people, um, that they don't even get into, you know, a clinical trial and certainly don't get out to market. And this ends up saving pharma enormous amounts of money by being able to kill candidate drugs earlier in the process. Yeah, so our number one focus is the patient safety part of it. We want to make sure drugs don't get into people when they could be harmful. But um, as you can imagine, there's a lot of um, pharmaceutical support for that aspect of it, as well as the financial benefit of that, too. So it becomes um, infinitely more expensive to develop a drug the further it gets into the development program. Mm-hmm. So, the well, What's the rule of thumb today? I know that <laughs> I used to do a lot of work in that space, and it was the rule of thumb back then was a billion. Yeah, so drug. it's gone up, I'm sure. I hesitate to commit to a number because there's a lot of <laughs> controversy out there in terms of how those dollar amounts are calculated. I see. But it's a lot. Yeah. I would agree. It's definitely in the millions to billions range to develop a drug. Mm-hmm. But there's, uh, yeah, there's some controversy out there as far as how those numbers are calculated. So I don't think I want to commit to a number myself. (laughs) But um, yeah, they're, they're staggering. And they've certainly increased dramatically in, you know, the past 10, 20 years. Mm -hmm. And um, so pharmaceutical companies obviously want to, um, to address that issue. And that's important for patients as well, because the, you know, expensive cost of developing a drug for a pharmaceutical company will ultimately get passed on to the patient. So it's in everybody's best interest to um, to identify ways to, to better screen drugs that are going to be problematic at the earliest stage possible mm-hmm. in the development process. So is there actually any such thing as a completely safe drug? No, I, I guess the rule of thumb in... Um, in toxicology is dose makes the poison. So any drug taken at very high doses will eventually become toxic. The goal with um, toxicology, um, you know, in the sort of development process for a drug is to identify what's called the therapeutic window. Mm -hmm. And this is a window at which you can take a drug 
and get the benefits of that, the efficacy, but the, um, the, the dose you're exposing yourself to is not going to cause toxicity. So there's usually a nice, um, for good drugs, there's a nice uh, window there of a therapeutic range where you can take the drug safely and get the benefits and you don't have to worry about the toxic side effects. And that's what preclinical work and phase one trials are, are really designed to uh, determine, right? Yep, exactly. So um, before a drug ever goes into a person, we want to identify doses that we know will not cause any toxicity. And then, you know, once a drug gets into a person, we will confirm that by, you know, exposing them to the lowest dose we think is acceptable and escalating that up to a point that we still think is safe, but just to make sure. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the next um, sort of phase of studies focuses on efficacy. And that's where we want to make sure the drug is actually doing what it's supposed to be. So first we make sure it's not doing anything it's not supposed to do. And then we make sure it's doing what it's supposed to do. I see. Okay. Uh, On the flip side of that, is there any way to preserve the benefits uh, of a particular drug that may have rare but serious adverse effects? Uh, And Vioxx comes to mind from years ago. Uh, Is there another answer potentially uh, besides just pulling a drug off the market completely, is that part of the Institute's portfolio to be able to answer questions like that? Yeah, exactly. So the, one of the major areas of research we do is, you know, as we talked about, making sure that we can keep drugs that aren't safe from getting into people. The other is to help us um, understand when we see a drug has a safety liability, how can we address that? And I would say it sort of falls into three different possibilities. One is it has a liability and there's nothing we can do about it. And we need to make sure that drug doesn't make it out to market or if it's on market, it gets withdrawn. The second is we may see something that looks like a safety liability, but we now have tools and methods to help us better understand that clinical signal that looks like a safety liability and know whether or not it really is. Because sometimes we will see elevations in, you know, a serum liver chemistries or some kind of clinical marker that looks like a safety signal. But um, if we really get to the root of it, it may not be concerning. And it may be something tolerated. And, you know, another kind of um, common term used in the development process is the risk benefit. Mm-hmm. And there may be certain indications where even if there is a risk and it's real, the benefit may weigh, outweigh the risk and we would still consider that worth pursuing. And then sort of the third category a drug with a safety signal can fall into is something where there's oftentimes what we call an idiosyncratic reaction. This is um, a very rare kind of reaction that seems to only affect a certain group of people. And then we're working on ways to um, identify the people that are going to be at risk for that kind of reaction and keep them from taking a potentially unsafe drug. And that's a very exciting area of research, kind of falls into that Uh, area of research we're calling uh, precision or personalized medicine. And um, yeah, we have some very exciting, uh, very cool tools that we're working with at the Institute to try to 
um, identify those risk factors that can be used for screening out uh, individuals that are at risk for a toxicity response. Well, absolutely, and and hopefully that will help bring some of the the actual ben- profound benefits of of drugs to individuals uh, that are suited for it and keep the ones yeah. who aren't away from it. Exactly. Yeah, there have been That's a number. The p- precision. <laughs> exactly. Idea. There have been a number of examples recently where there are drugs um, that are really the uh, first in class and only uh, drug available to treat um, a serious disease uh, that show these kinds of idiosyncratic responses. And, uh, you know, there's a patient population out there that can take that drug safely and Mm -hmm. really needs to have access to it. But it's being withheld because there are individuals that do show these adverse responses. So it's a very important um, area of research to make sure that drugs can get to the patients who need them most. And I I understand that uh, a lot of drugs are now being approved and released with accompanying genomic testing. To, to determine whether the individual may be susceptible. Yeah, that's becoming uh, more common. Um, I would say now um, as much as 95% of drugs uh, or the variability in drug response is associated with some kind of a genetic variability. Now, not all of that is significant enough that it's going to be worth having a genetic test to identify, you know, patient's uh, response to a drug. Um, But some of them are, and they help uh, to make sure that a patient gets a more appropriate dose. Um, And that can influence both efficacy and safety. So Mm -hmm. it's becoming a lot more common. Now, in I think of the example of a few years ago when, a boy, I think it was a boy, who was given a normal dose of Prozac and, and died because he had hypersensitivity. Yeah, I mean, the um, the effects of, of giving somebody a dose that's not tolerated can be very severe. So we certainly want to address that issue. And and Mary, the, and I hope we're not going over some of the ter- territory you've already covered well, but I did want to ask, currently it seems like some drug candidates get very far in the process, uh, even to the point of approval, uh, before drug safety concerns arise. Why, why do you think that is, and is that something that you folks are really working to, to combat? Yeah, so this kind of goes back to it. I don't think we've really touched on it fully. The contribution of genetics to adverse drug response. So we, um, I think we appreciate this a lot more, as I mentioned, um, as much as 95% of the variability in drug response seems to be um, a result of variability in genetics. And uh, certainly that can contribute to adverse drug response. There are some uh, classic examples of that, like warfarin, where polymorphisms in both the drug target and in some of the major drug metabolizing enzymes will contribute to uh, an increased risk for uh, bleeding, which is an adverse drug response associated with that particular compound. Um, And now I think we appreciate that... Um, there are uh, 
genetic factors that contribute to adverse drug response that don't necessarily influence um, drug metabolism or aren't necessarily related to the drug target. So these are things sort of independent of pharmacokinetics or pharmacodynamics that can contribute to adverse drug response. And um, you know, a lot of these have been um, in the HLA region of the genome, and they're thought to contribute to sort of off-target immune-mediated effects. But despite this knowledge that um, genetics plays a major role in susceptibility to adverse drug response, we don't include genetic diversity in our preclinical drug development program. This includes, you know, the in vitro and animal models that are used to look at both efficacy and safety for a drug before it ever goes into a human. Mm-hmm. Most of those studies are conducted in uh, cells and animals from a single genetic background, which is obviously not representative of the humans that that drug will uh, go into once a drug gets into a clinical development program. Um, I think it's pretty obvious that that would be a, you know, an issue that would, we would potentially miss uh, responses that have some kind of genetic contribution if we don't look at different genetic backgrounds in the preclinical phase. So what our group has been doing for many years now, um, and this was kind of the work that was originally initiated with Allison Harrell uh, when our group was still part of the Hamner Institutes and has since continued as we've joined a school pharmacy at UNC, we're uh, working on using these genetically diverse mouse population models to help incorporate genetic diversity into uh, preclinical studies, you know, to, so into those studies um, to look at safety and efficacy before a drug ever goes into humans. And these mouse, genetically diverse mouse populations have been developed for this very purpose, right? Yeah, well... They've been developed for certainly looking at uh, the contribution of genetic factors to a variety of things. And our group Mm -hmm. has been the one that's taken advantage of that tool in the drug safety space. I see. I I had Jeff French on the show years ago, and I know he was uh, was very instrumental in in working on some of that in the toxicology space. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think the idea has been widely accepted by the field now. Um, Mm -hmm. So we've been working a lot in the drug safety space. There are great folks in the area at um, EPA and at NIEHS that are using these population models to look at chemical safety um, for environmental chemicals. And I think the logic, the same logic there applies, which is that Um, a genetically diverse mouse population is going to better represent the kind of genetic diversity that you get in the human population than just looking at a single um, animal with a single, you know, genetic background. So I understand that you you actually cite three uh, reasons for using the genetically diverse mouse population. And I'm going to give you the opportunity to to recite those. So in drug safety, there are a lot of benefits to this. And certainly you can imagine um, just the use of a population model as opposed to a single um, inbred strain or an animal with a single genetic background helps to sort of better represent the kind of diversity you get 
um, in drug response across a population. But there are, again, three kind of advantages to that just beyond the population level response. The first in terms of drug safety is if you identify a sensitive strain for a compound, this is a great tool for what we call next-in-class compounds. So if, you know, a compound um, in development looks like it's causing toxicity in in, uh, people and we're not going to pursue it, but now we have an animal model that's very sensitive to that, we can, uh, with these population approaches, we can go back and use that model as we develop a new compound that we think might be safer and therefore have a better profile in in humans. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, Another benefit to the population-based approach is the ability to use the genetic information across the population to actually do genetic mapping and identify those risk factors that contribute to individual susceptibility. And this is really what makes these populations so cool. They've been um, strategically designed to do high-resolution genetic mapping, meaning we can get down to, you know, a single gene or a single variant within a gene that we think is causing susceptibility in a specific group of people. Mm -hmm. And now... Obviously, we're not interested in identifying risk factors for mouse toxicity. Um, That's not really going to be terribly useful (laughs) going forward. What we want to know about is those risk factors in humans. But the mouse approach is a very powerful tool to help us generate hypotheses as to what will cause individual susceptibility in humans. And You know, it's very difficult to do um, human genetic studies using data from clinical trials because the sample sizes are fairly small to do the same kind of high-resolution mapping. Uh, The population of humans in a clinical trial wasn't strategically bred or developed for high-resolution genetic mapping. So you might not have... Thank goodness. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So you might not have quite the same kind of... Mm -hmm. Um, background to do that approach. So and the mice really give you the statistical power exactly. to, to do all this. Exactly, mm-hmm. yeah. And sort of the third thing that we um, we take from these mouse populations is the ability to, uh, once we've identified some sensitive individuals, go back and do mechanistic studies. So we don't just want to, you know, identify a risk factor, and that's a great hypothesis we could test in humans. We really want to understand how that risk factor contributes to the toxicity susceptibility. And with these um, populations, once we've identified a sensitive strain, we can go back and and do some additional experiments there to really get at that question. I see. Uh, Well, with all that in mind, and it it sounds like you have great fun (laughs) doing this. But um, what about the issue uh, that's known as IVIVE? Mm -hmm. And this is actually in vitro to in vivo extrapolation. Or it's taking the, the, I guess, the mouse data and extrapolating it to the human because uh, humans are, are not the same as mice, right? Yeah. <laughs> so there are kind of two issues, I think, that come up. Um, the issue when we're working with an in vivo mouse population is um, what we call species differences. And that is a concern. It's very possible that a toxicity or a response that observed in a mouse population doesn't translate to humans. 
mice are not humans. We know that. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are a lot of differences in the mouse genome that contribute to why mice are not humans. And so we have to be very cognizant of those. Is that becoming documented? Are are, are people working on that to to really nail that down? So the nice thing about working with mice is that they have been... um, They've been studied for so long because they're a great um, model organism to understand what's happening in humans. And because they've been studied for so long, we know a lot of the key differences that really impact um, drug response in the mice that are different from humans. So Mm -hmm. we know a lot about the drug metabolizing enzymes in mice and how they compare to humans. And the same with once a, a drug is being developed and it it's going after a particular drug target. Oftentimes, a lot of that work has been done in mouse models. And so people will know a lot of information about the differences in that drug target and the downstream responses in mice versus humans. So we keep all of that in mind when we're doing these studies. And we're very aware of the limitations of uh, a mouse um, population-based approach compared to a human. But that aside, I mean, Mice are really wonderful models for human biology. We know a lot about um, the mouse model, and it's given us a lot of information about uh, human disease and human drug development, and they're widely used as a model organism for studying drug efficacy and drug toxicity. So the mouse really isn't going anywhere in that space. It's it's an accepted model. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say the other thing is, There's no other resource that allows us to do this kind of genetic mapping in a mammalian model that can be translated to humans. So we can't breed humans to have the level of diversity and the structure of the genome that has been um, done in these mouse population models that allow us to do such high-resolution genetic mapping. We can't do that in another model organism. So it really is the sort of top of the line for this approach. The other thing you mentioned is IVIVE. So that refers to in vitro to in vivo extrapolation. And that is another issue we run into in the drug development space is trying to translate a response in an in vitro model to what is actually happening in humans. And that's true whether you're working with human cells in culture or mouse cells in culture. But um, what's cool is that we've we've sort of mapped out a lot of the differences of cells on a plate to cells in a human, you know, in an organ, in a human, a living human system. And there are computational approaches now that allow us to say this response in um, a dish of cells in the lab translates to this response in a living human in a clinical trial. So really drug, drug, toxic, drug toxicity testing is really moving toward a more cell-based or, or in vitro uh, approaches as the larger field of toxicology is. Yes, and we are too. So we, I think, agree with um, the field that um, you, know, you can get a lot of very useful information from an in vitro system. And now with the great computational tools we have, we can translate that to what it means in vivo. There are a lot of benefits to working with an in vitro system 
um, in the sense that, you know, you can do many, many, many more replicates. You can do what we call sort of high throughput experimentation that allows us to screen large numbers of compounds at many concentrations, at many time points, and many endpoints, uh, which is a lot easier to do in vitro than in vivo. The cost is more reasonable to do in vitro experiments than in vivo. And then, of course, I'm sure something that everybody's thinking about is, you know, the animal welfare issue. Of course. Sure. And we don't want to be unnecessarily using um, mouse or any other kind of animal model. Um, and so the ability now to um, isolate cells from a mouse model and replicate those cells in vitro and not have to use any additional animals right. is a huge advantage as well. And we're moving into that space now. We actually um, receive funding this year, I did, from um, the Burroughs Welcome Fund to uh, pursue development of an in vitro mouse population model. And I think that's going to have, uh, this is going to take this approach to the next level and have many, many advent- advantages. The sort of things I was talking about the cost, the efficiency, um, and the power, you know, the reproducibility we'll be able to have using an in vitro model. So we're very excited about this, and it's actively underway in the lab right now. That's very exciting, and I want to come back to that in just a minute. But you are listening to Radio in Vivo, and my guest today is Dr. Mary Mosdale from UNC Chapel Hill. And we are discussing her and her colleagues' work in drug safety. Mary, why is so much of this drug safety work focused on the liver. Yeah, so uh, the liver is actually a major target organ of adverse drug response. There's a couple reasons for that. Uh, One is it's one of the first organs that a drug will see when it's taken by the most sort of common route of delivery, which is oral. Mm -hmm. You know, you'll take a drug, you'll swallow it, um, and it gets absorbed into your intestine. The first thing it goes to is your liver. So it's certainly seeing higher quantities of drug than um, some other organs in the body. The other is a lot of drug metabolism happens in the liver, and that's where some of these issues arise. So your liver will see a drug, And, um, you know, it does its job. It knows that it's not something that's supposed to be there. It's something coming from outside of the body. And it's trying to break it down into things that the body can actually get rid of. And that process sometimes generates uh, what we call sort of harmful reactive metabolites. And those reactive metabolites are oftentimes what cause toxicity. So the liver just inherently is a very susceptible organ to adverse drug response. It's, it's where the action is. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So a lot of our work, um, as a result, ends up focusing on the liver. It is um, really the major toxicity that impacts uh, drug development programs and causes uh, withdrawals or warnings for drugs that are out on the market. I see. Mm-hmm. Um, so we uh, have focused on um, you know, a lot of compounds that are associated with uh, drug-induced liver injury. We call it DILI. Right. <laughs> and um, a lot of our models are focused on the liver. Um, but I think we focus on the liver because that's such an um, important um, adverse drug response and such an por- important organ in drug safety. But um, we ultimately do this with the um, – 
plan to, you know, pursue, you know, other organs as well. So even if we're developing an in vitro model for liver safety, we would like to expand that to, to other organs that are impacted um, in drug toxicity as well. Good. Uh, one of the things that's been fascinating to watch over the years uh, with this work has been the the concentration not only on the liver and drug-induced liver in injury, but uh, using acetaminophen as as the model compound. Yeah. And and I I remember you know you don't you don't really <laughs> that is Tylenol. Yep. And you know people don't think of Tylenol as a as a dangerous drug in any way shape or form, uh, unless it's been contaminated, of course. But that's that's a yeah. whole other story. But uh, it it has the potential to to cause liver injury. Yeah. So interestingly, uh, that's sort of the prototypical hepatotoxicant that we use in a lot of our development research when we're testing to see if a new model or a new assay works. We'll use acetaminophen as the model compound um, that we would expect to see a response. It's interesting because I think if you'd asked people 10 years ago whether there's any concern with uh, Tylenol or acetaminophen, most people would say no. And the truth is, if it's used at a prescribed dose, that is true. There really is no risk. There's never been anybody, to my knowledge, that's taken Tylenol at the prescribed dose, even people that take it for you know chronic pain for years and years and years that have has ever had a liver injury or any other kind of toxicity associated with Tylenol. But it's going back to something we talked about before. It has a very fairly narrow therapeutic window. Mm -hmm. So once you get above the acceptable dose, then yes, it can be very toxic. And that's why there have been so many people that have had um, liver injury associated with Tylenol. And there was a I'm not sure how many years ago now that sort of ProPublica report that came out that I think started to make people aware of how dangerous it can be if it's taken at um, at concentrations or doses uh, more than what's recommended. Mm-hmm. But of course, that that's true of, of any drug, really, isn't it? Yeah, it's true of any drug. I think Tylenol is probably more unique or acetaminophen is more unique because it has such a narrow therapeutic window. You know, it's so extremely safe if mm-hmm. you take below four grams a day. Like I said, nobody's ever had liver injury taking it at the prescribed dose, even people that take it for years and years and years. Yeah. But once you get just above that, it can be extremely toxic and you know life-threatening, and lots of people die from um, Tylenol overdose. Much of that is intentional, but um, sure. a lot of people unintentionally too, because it's also included in um, – a lot of you know over-the-counter products that people don't realize it's in, so it can be easier to have that kind of um, an unintentional overdose. It's in you know Theraflu and other things that you might not be thinking, and then if you take on top of that some Tylenol, then all of a sudden you're starting to get into that range where it's um, more concerning. But uh, yeah, I mean any drug if you take. Um, too much of it can certainly put you at risk for an adverse drug reaction. Well, Mary, let's let's spend a little time uh, on Mary. Okay. <laughs> uh, you're still at a relatively early stage of your career. 
but you still really have an impressive list of accomplishments uh, already. I'd like to focus on, on two which really showcase your scientific achievements. Uh, first of all, tell us a little bit about winning the 2017 Sternfels Prize for Drug Safety Innovation. This was so exciting for me, um, and thank you for bringing it up. Um, the Sternfels Prize is actually a competition where you submit a research proposal you have for an idea that would Im- somehow improve drug safety. And uh, kind of working in the drug safety space, obviously, I have a lot of ideas for things that would improve <laughs> <I should hope laughs> <so. laughs> improve drug safety. And some are, um, you know, things that are a little more straightforward and certainly more fundable by traditional funding agencies like the NIH or um, other independent research um, organizations. And some of them are kind of more pie-in-the-sky things that, you know, are, are less likely to get traction from a traditional research a um, support kind of organization. High reward. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And they'll have, you know, less preliminary data supporting them and um, probably be a little more difficult to test. So um, I had one of those ideas I thought would be good to submit to this competition. And it's a really fun um, kind of competition to enter because it's only a two-page research proposal. So you really have to be able to clearly articulate your idea in you know not a lot of real estate and show how it would have a major impact. So I was able to um, submit an idea that relates to what we've been talking about, you know, again, looking at genetic risk factors for adverse drug response. But this idea was actually looking at uh, ways to group certain types of genetic risk factors that um, might improve the power to um, identify or the really the um, sensitivity to identify individuals that would be at risk for adverse drug responses. And um, fortunately for me, the organization thought it was a really good idea, too, and I received the award, and it was great because it was, you know, um, not too long after I had transitioned into the School of Pharmacy at UNC, so I I think it sort of helped uh, bring a little bit of recognition to the kind of work that we're doing and to drug safety in general. Mm -hmm. Um, Our research program within the university, it helped us make some new connections with even within our – division and within our school uh, by highlighting some of the work that we're doing. And it helped bring me in touch with um, some folks that are interested in uh, sponsoring drug safety research. And we were able to get some financial support to uh, pursue the idea. And it's something that we're working on now. And uh, stay tuned. Hopefully we'll have some, you know, exciting discoveries from it. Wonderful. Well, when, when you publish, we'll, we'll yeah. have to have you back and tell us all more Thank about you. it. Uh, But let's look at the other major award that you won in 2017, which you've already touched on, uh, the Burroughs Welcome Fund Innovation in Regulatory Science Award, which is a five-year, $500,000 prize. Uh, Your proposal was titled, Development of an In Vitro Platform for the Evaluation of Genetic Susceptibility Factors Associated with Drug Adverse Drug Response. Uh, as you have already alluded to. But I I know we already discussed the science, but what impact has this pretty major award had on your research and your life? Yeah, this has been uh, quite transformative. 
So this is the opposite process of the um, Sternfels Prize here. This was a pretty lengthy proposal with lots of uh, supplements. And then um, there were some uh, finalists selected. We came uh, to the Burroughs Welcome headquarters, which for- fortunately for me are here in the Triangle area to uh, do um, – you know, one of these sort of five-minute elevator pitches to a, a panel of really esteemed um, scientists and folks from industry that are very knowledgeable in this space. And then they had opportunities to ask us questions. So it was a very lengthy uh, process. Um, and I'm so glad I went through it because we were uh, able to get – I was able to receive the award and get funding for this research, which, as we've talked about, I think is – just a really an important area and likely to be very transformative area of research. So again, taking advantage of these genetically diverse mouse population models, but transitioning them to a, a higher throughput and more cost-effective in vitro platform. And I have struggled for years with this idea to get funding also from, you know, transition um, traditional funding agencies like NIH. I don't feel like this is sort of a high-risk area. Um, We've done uh, a lot of great work and published a number of papers showing the benefits of using the in vivo models. And you can't argue against the benefits of transitioning something like this to an in vitro platform. So I have felt like... That's cell-based. Yeah, exactly, a cell-based platform. So Mm -hmm. I I felt like this is, uh, you know not high risk and still high reward kind of project, but I've struggled to get funding for it. And I'm so grateful that Burroughs Welcome agreed with me that this is the, um, that this is a really great idea and something that could have a great benefit in the uh, drug development space. And I think part of it is that kind of application process benefit somebody like me who is so, you know, excited and can hopefully verbalize my excitement about something like this that can take an idea like this and transition it into a five-minute elevator pitch and hit the high notes because that, you know, is how a project like this gets funded. It doesn't, I guess, come across well on, you know, your traditional 12-page NIH research proposal where so much of that is dependent on, you know, years and years of preliminary data and um, Mm -hmm. letters of support (laughs) from high-ranking academic um, individuals. And so fortunately, I think the Burroughs Welcome um, award process was better for me for this kind of idea than a more traditional funding approach. And I'm so grateful that they agreed that this is a good idea and are willing to support it. So now we have uh, funding to pursue this idea. We're actively working on it in the lab, um, generating some really exciting data showing feasibility of this. Uh, We've been focusing on liver, as we talked about. So we're uh, pursuing um, a patocyte model system, so a liver cell model system to look at um, drug-induced liver injury. And uh, we've 
um, you know, isolated and cultured cells from a number of strains within this population. Uh, we've shown that the way we're culturing these cells allows them to survive in culture much longer than kind of standard models. So we can expose them to compounds for weeks or even months, which is much more reflective of what happens in vivo and um, what contributes to the kind of toxicities we see in the clinic. Mm -hmm. It's not usually, you know, you take a drug once and then you have liver injury. It's usually um, weeks or months on a drug before you start to see a response so we can better replicate that in in vitro. So the cells are being more reflective of the the in vitro experience. And they maintain a lot of the... um, Now, are these human hepatocytes? So again, we're still working with the mouse uh, model here, but we've extended some of these culture techniques to human hepatocyte models as Mm -hmm. well. And uh, they have value, even though we're not working with the genetic diversity portion of it, which is what this award was focused on, Um, certainly culturing human um, liver cell or human hepatocyte models in this way can be advantageous and provide us a lot of information as well. So we're doing that in the lab too. We've got um, human and mouse cells in culture as we speak. Well, it, it sounds like things are just progressing swimmingly. Yeah, we're excited. Um, you know, this is always a busy time of year for us, trying to uh, wrap things up before the end of the year to um, generate uh, reports and, and manuscripts to show our progress. And so it's an exciting time as well. But uh, I feel good about where things are and I'm um, excited about the work that we're planning for next year, too. Well, Mary, you're doing some really interesting and, and important work. Uh, And we certainly appreciate you coming over and spending some uh, time with us here on Radio In Vivo. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. We've got some great guests coming up in the coming weeks here on Radio In Vivo. You can check the website radioinvivo.net or our Facebook site for the lineup of upcoming shows. Join us again next time for Radio In Vivo, your link to the Triangle Science Community right here on volunteer-powered WCOM-FM, Carborough and Chapel Hill. And if you enjoy the show, we ask that you support this station by visiting our website, wcomfm.org, and make a secure online contribution by clicking the Donate Now button. We rely on listener support to keep your voice in the community on the air. Thanks for listening, and we will catch you next time.